Welcome to the Danny Picard Show, Tuesday, April 12th, 2016. As always, broadcasting from the Beantown Athletics Studio in Dorchester, Massachusetts. Beantown Athletics, your only source for customized screen printing and embroidery. Go to BeantownAthletics.com right now. That's BeantownAthletics.com or give them a call at 617-282-4181. That's 617-282-4181. And make sure you tell them I sent you a big night tonight. Big night tonight at Fenway. They are giving out David Ortiz 500 chains. If you don't know what that means, there's pictures all over the internet, all over Twitter. Just search it. These chains that they're going to give out, I don't even know how many people they're giving them out to. The first, you know, couple thousand people, I think. I don't, I don't know the exact number. But if you get there early enough and you have a ticket and you're going to the ballpark tonight for this game against Baltimore, you will receive a David Ortiz chain. The number 500 uh, signifies David Ortiz's 500th career home run that he hit last season. And uh, they'll be giving those out tonight. So it feels like it has a Christmas feel to it because I can't wait to get my hands on one of these. I think we're going to the game. I'm not sure. We're going to try to go, at least, because we really do want to get our hands on these chains. Uh, as you know, if you've seen pictures of this studio, we have all these bobbleheads. We always make sure that we get our hands on the free giveaway nights at Fenway. Whatever they're giving away. Bobbleheads. Um, I mean, replica Fenway, ballparks, we, I have one of those as well. And, of course, the David Ortiz chains that they'll be giving out tonight. I will have one in my hands, or should I say around my neck tomorrow. I'm, I'll probably even do the podcast with it around my neck tomorrow. But yesterday was opening day at Fenway, and David Ortiz, you know, the, the ceremony at the beginning of the game, look, the Red Sox know how to put on a show. Before a game. They do. The Red Sox know how to put on a show. Sometimes these shows can get somewhat awkward. I'll be the first to admit that. And uh, you know, they come up with all these surprises. Like yesterday, you know, they surprised David Ortiz by he, he's lined up on the first baseline getting ready for the national anthem. And they surprise him saying his daughter's in the building. And not only is she in the building, but she's going to be singing the national anthem. And, you know, Ortiz didn't know how to react. I think there was a shock factor. And he even said afterwards, it was, you know, he was as nervous for that as he's ever been in any major league at bat. And as we know, he's had some pretty important pressure-packed major league at bats. Uh, So that was quite a scene yesterday at Fenway. But an emotional moment for David Ortiz and his family as his daughter sang the national anthem. It was a surprise to him. I mean, again, at times it gets somewhat awkward. Like, I was waiting yesterday. I'm watching this, and I'm texting with a couple buddies. I was literally waiting yesterday for Joe Castiglione over the loudspeaker to announce that one of the players' wives was pregnant, like surprising a player. Surprise! Uh, Clay Buckholz, we just want to let you know that you're having another baby girl. Like, would you be surprised if they did something like that to a player? Like, they they come out with these surprises. Obviously, I'm exaggerating, all right? But, but, I mean, they do some crazy things. Like, the Red Sox, they know how to put on a show. They know how to keep you entertained, and they did that yesterday. And early on in this game against Baltimore on opening day, um, the Red Sox scored three runs. 
and they took a 3-0 lead. And David Price, I thought, looked great early on. And uh, this was looking like the Red Sox were going to hand the Baltimore Orioles their first loss of the season. And then the top of the third inning came, and David Price let up five runs. There was some bad luck in this inning. You know, he gets the little bloop, and then he hits Manny Machado. Machado wearing these baggy pants, and it, it just sort of literally... I don't even, I honestly, I watched it again. I think it touched his pant leg. I'm not even sure still, but either way, his pant leg is so baggy on the bottom. I've never seen anything like it. And this is coming from someone who watched uh, Manny Ramirez with, with his baggy pant legs in a Red Sox uniform for many years. But Manny Machado's, it's, it's, it's crazy. And the ball hit his back foot. It didn't hit the foot, hit the pant leg. So technically that's hit by a pitch. He, he gets on base. And then David Price, he throws a bad pitch to Trumbo, and Trumbo made him pay. Trumbo made him pay. Uh, that's a fastball that was, what, didn't locate it. It was, it was up. It was over the plate. And, again, Trumbo put it in the bullpen in right center field. Or he, he put it deep out there. And David Price let up five runs in the top of the third inning. And you're looking at the game at that point going, uh-oh. Like, that's not how you drew it up if you're Dave Dombrowski, if you're the Boston Red Sox. And when you go back to the opener in Cleveland last week, I sat here and I praised David Price and I praised Dombrowski. And I said, what they, what he did in Cleveland, that's how the Red Sox drew it up. That's how they drew it up. And it was the complete opposite yesterday at Fenway in that third inning. Now, give credit where credit's due. Price did end up finishing strong, but he didn't go as long and as deep into the game as you'd like him to. Five innings for Price is the final line. Five hits, five runs. He walked two. He struck out eight. He threw 104 pitches. Again, I told you he finished strong after that five-run third inning. But uh, even after that, look, Price, no decision. Because the Red Sox offense, they are relentless. If there's any identity to this Red Sox team right now, it's their relentless lineup. They are in every game. They will stay in every game. And they scored two runs in the bottom of the fourth inning. And then you're looking at a 6-6 six to six game going into the ninth. 6-6. Six to six. You call on your closer. And people, some people I've heard, and I was on WEI last night, and there were some people that called in, I was on till midnight, that wanted to question John Farrell, bringing the closer into that spot. Um, here's the deal. It, opening day at Fenway, much like I thought opening day in Cleveland, it's a different type of pressure. I think you let Kimbrell get his feet wet in this one yesterday at Fenway, right? Let, let him, I, I didn't hate it. I did not hate it. I was not crushing John Farrell for bringing Kimbrell into this game yesterday in the ninth. What, what I was crushing was Kimbrell's decision to stick with the low fastball that Chris Davis loves to hit. And, and that's what happened. Chris Davis, a three-run home run on a low fastball from Craig Kimbrell that gave the Orioles a 9-6 to lead, and the Orioles go on to win the game 9-7. to I thought the Red Sox, they had some magic in them, I thought, in the bottom of the ninth when Mookie Betts led the bottom of the ninth off with a solo home run to left field. But, uh... <laughs> You know, I'm I'm looking at this thing, and I go back to the top of the ninth, and and you combine Price's performance letting up five runs, Kimbrel's performance getting the loss and letting up that three-run home run to Chris Davis, and it's the complete opposite from what you saw opening day in Cleveland. 
In Cleveland, it's exactly how Dave Dombrowski drew it up. Yesterday at Fenway, at the Fenway home opener, it's the complete opposite of how you drew it up. Now, let's get into specifics again real quick. I think Price got some bad luck in the third inning, and then he made a bad pitch to Trumbo. Okay, fine. I think you got to live with it. I think Price will be fine. You get to the ninth. Kimbrell. He got two outs. Davis at the plate. Couple guys on. He walked Machado before then. I was okay with the Machado walk, only because Kimbrell was a little erratic early in the at-bat with fastball away, fastball away, and I was fine with it. You know, you stay away from Machado. Don't put anything middle in. Don't let him put one of the monster seats. But when you're trying to pound it outside, the control was a little erratic, and that's the one thing with Kimbrell that I've seen so far about him is that I think he's a little too jacked up in some of these outings with the fastball. I mean, his fastball's still nasty. It's got movement. It's low in the zone. I think, again, I think Kimbrell will be fine too. So I was okay with the Machado walk. If you want to stay away from him, you put another guy on. You got two outs. Chris Davis, you know he can make you pay with one swing of the bat. But there's a couple things here. The first pitch to Chris Davis was a breaking ball, and you could tell the way Davis was standing there. I think you could have thrown Chris Davis three breaking balls in a row, and I think he would have had the bat on his shoulder every single time. I do. I think he was dead set on one pitch, and it's the low fastball that Kimbrell loves to throw because that's what Davis loves to hit. It's his wheelhouse. And so after that first pitch strike, the breaking ball that Davis got caught looking and just obvious, it was obvious when he looked at that pitch what he was looking for. He was looking for the low fastball. I don't understand why the next pitch was a low fastball. Not Yeah, it was 97, but Davis was all over it, and he put it in center field, and that's a three-run home run. I mean, if you're going to commit to the fastball, if you're Kimbrell in that situation, I think you've got to commit to it in a way in which you're staying away. You're not putting anything middle in, and that's you – know, Kimbrell made that mistake middle in, and Davis made him pay, and the Red Sox yesterday lose to the Orioles 9-7, and here are the Baltimore Orioles, the only – undefeated team in Major League Baseball at 6-0. and But if you're concerned about David Price and Craig Kimbrell, then you're nuts. Don't be concerned about these two guys. I think they are going to be fine. I'm telling you right now, they're going to be fine. I mean, if you had me put my money on what's going to happen with these two the rest of the season, is it going to look more like what we saw in Cleveland on opening day in Cleveland? Or is it going to look like we saw it at Fenway yesterday. If I have to put my money on it, I'll put my money on Price and Kimbrell looking like they did in Cleveland for most of this season. That's I think what you saw yesterday was the exact opposite of what these two guys are going to be in 2016. I really believe that, and I feel very strongly about that to the point where I am not panicking today, uh, even though the Red Sox tonight, when they look to turn it around and snap this two-game losing skid, as they sit with a 3-3 three and three record, they turn to Clay Buckholtz that, you know, I don't know how you could actually feel confident with that. With Buckholtz on the mound, just specifically looking at him. Buckholtz, this will be his 83rd career start at Fenway tonight. Uh, we got some rain. I looked into the forecast. It looks like it's going to clear up by about 5, 6 o'clock. First pitch is at 7-10. So Buckholtz should have some decent weather, mid mid fifties uh, to the uh, you know low sixties, some some dry weather. That's what he should get, and uh, he needs to bounce back from an awful performance against the Indians. But this will be Buckholtz's eighty third career start at Fenway. He is thirty three and twenty six 
with a 3.93 ERA. And as we mentioned, he was terrible against Cleveland. I told you on this podcast uh, last week that Buck Holtz, I watched that game, and I can usually get a vibe as to what a pitch's game plan is, and I just had no idea what Buck Holtz was trying to do. Was he trying to go in? Was he trying to go out? Was he trying to keep it up, put it down? I had no idea. It was like they were picking a pitch, and he was just throwing it, and it's a bad strategy, especially when you don't have the stuff. You know, Clay Buck Holtz does not have the same stuff he had in 2013. He doesn't. Go back and watch the film. It's, it's not the same. And when it's not the same, you got to figure out a way to pinpoint your control. And, and if you're going to try to paint then, and, and confuse, then you better throw some strikes, especially early in the game. Because at the, we're to the point where Buck Holtz, I mean, who, what umpire has given Buck Holtz a call? Honestly, who's given Buck Holtz a call if it's close? I think if it's close, it goes the other way. That's where I think we stand with this kid. But the good thing for the Red Sox tonight, all right, Buck Holtz is on the mound. It, I don't know how you could feel confident in him, but with the team as a whole tonight, the Orioles, and I talked a little bit about this last night on WEEI, the Orioles are going with righty Mike Wright. Now, Mike Wright played 12 games last year for the Baltimore Orioles. He made nine starts. In those nine starts, Mike Wright had a 6.04 ERA. 6.04 ERA. So I went back. Last year, his first major league season. This tonight will be his first start of the season, of this season, his second major league season. And uh, I went back and looked at how many games he played against the Red Sox. Mike Wright made a start against the Red Sox last September. September 16, 2015. It was a battle between Henry Owens and Mike Wright. Mike Wright, three innings pitched. He picked up the loss. Uh, the Red Sox, they beat the Orioles 10-1. to Mike Wright, again, three innings, allowed six hits, allowed six runs, all of them earned, walked one, struck out one, threw only 60 pitches, and he allowed two home runs. Those home runs came to David Ortiz and Dustin Pedroia. Pedroia hit a two-run home run off him in the third. David Ortiz hit a solo shot to center in the second inning. So this is a guy tonight that with this Red Sox lineup, being as relentless as we've seen them be, they should be all over this kid right tonight, and they should light him up, and they should light him up early, and if they can do that, then they will take a whole lot of pressure away from Clay Buckholtz, who you would think has a lot of pressure on him, not just because of his own personal outing against Cleveland, which was a complete stinker last week, but because now you're asking him with your ace having a tough third inning yesterday on the, in the home opener, you're now turning to, to Clay Buckholz to get this team out of a little skid. And uh, so there's even added pressure on him for that. If you can do, if you can take some pressure off of him and get to Mike Wright early tonight, I think the Red Sox should be able to do it. I think it's a safe bet that they do. Uh, so that's what I'm expecting. I'm expecting the Red Sox to, you know, put a five, six spot on the board in the first couple innings off this kid. You know, give Clay Buckholtz some wiggle room, some cushion, some margin for error. You know, if he gets in a couple jams, at least if it's the guy on, two guys on base, at least he knows, hey, if I do let up the long ball, uh, you know, it's not going to tie the game. So let's loosen up. Let's not tense up and let's not completely lose our mind because there's a guy on base. And I think sometimes that's exactly what happens to Buckholtz when guys get on base. He becomes a head case. And that is not a good thing, especially in a situation in which you're asking him to get 
this team out of a little funk here because after Buckholtz in this series against Baltimore, tomorrow night on Wednesday night, you're going to see Joe Kelly going up against Ubaldo Jimenez. And that's where that series wraps up and Toronto comes to town as the Red Sox have Thursday off. Toronto comes to town Friday for a weekend series. The good thing about that is, by the looks of it, the Red Sox are not going to have to face Marcus Stroman. They're going to just miss Marcus Stroman. It looks like Ari Dickey is going to pitch that game Friday night. But then Saturday at 4 o'clock, Marco Estrada will be on the mound. And you saw what Estrada did to the Red Sox on Sunday with that nasty changeup. We'll see if the Red Sox can make the proper adjustments on that pitch. The one thing we know Estrada won't do on Saturday is provide a fastball any higher than 90 miles an hour. I mean, he does not throw very hard, but because that changeup uh, is so good, I think maybe the even 89, 90-mile-per-hour fastball looks a little bit hotter than it actually shows up on the radar gun. But uh, we got some time uh, to get to that, but Joe Kelly will be tomorrow night, and I don't know how you feel confident in that either. Then you have Rick Porcello. How do you feel confident in that? And then it's Stephen Wright again. I mean... I still think ultimately this team desperately needs Stephen Wright to be in long relief for this club because they're going to need that a couple times at some point. And knowing how good this Red Sox offense is, I think that long relief role is a very critical role to sort of minimize some of the damage, you know, in maybe a three to four inning span if your starter does need to get yanked in the third or the fourth inning, right? I mean, you can't keep going. To co- we can't keep throwing Tazawa, Koji, Kimbrell out there every night when when it's not a, a, a hold or a save situation. Like, you just can't keep doing that. Uh, so you do need someone like Steven Wright back into the bullpen. Right now he's still in the rotation because we're waiting to see what the timetable will be for Eduardo Rodriguez. And I get some people calling up last night at, on WEI asking, well, what do you think is, you know, the Red Sox, should they make a move for a pitcher? And I say, well, there's a couple things here that you got to keep your eye out for, and it's, I've been pounding away with this message now for a couple weeks. It's not just Eduardo Rodriguez, because that to me is going to feel like an acquisition when you put him back in the rotation. Eduardo Rodriguez, but also the catcher, Christian Vasquez. I mean, did you see Swihart yesterday in this game with David Price in the mound? Swihart, he was dropping fastballs, literally. Couldn't catch him. I think that, I saw at least three. Just dropped them. That can't happen, okay? And because, you one, you start losing the confidence of your pitching staff. And, two, I think you lose the confidence of everybody in the organization, everybody in the team, and even the fan base. I mean, I'm looking at Swihart going, all right, you got to catch this one. And there was one that was up at the eyes that he couldn't catch. And, you know, the broadcast team was trying to justify it by saying, well, I think he thought it was higher than – uh, then he thought it was going to be in some shadow there. No, 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 no. You got to catch that ball. And it wasn't like they were getting crossed up either. This was just, all right, fastball away. Here comes the fastball away. You know, it's coming and you just can't catch it. That's that's kind of a problem. So <laughs> keep an eye on that situation. But not just that Wilder Rodriguez coming back is going to help this pitching staff. I also think when you get Christian Vasquez in the fold, then Vasquez is going to be somebody that, I think this pitching staff's going to love to throw to. That's going to help some of these guys out as well. I think it's going to help. Buck, put it this way. It can only help someone like Buckholtz, someone like Kelly, someone like Porcello, though. What we've been seeing with Kelly is that Ryan Hannigan's behind the plate. Still, if if Vasquez is this kid that we think he's going to be, that at least the organization feels like he can be internally, 
then you got, you know, that could change too. You could see Vasquez also catching Kelly, which he should. I mean, you know how I feel about personal catches and, and starting pitches asking for it. You got to earn that right. You got to earn the right to be able to get your own personal catcher. I know John Farrell's trying to do anything he can right now to make this pitching staff feel comfortable. So on one hand, I don't really want to crush him for it. But on the other hand, I mean, let's be honest. You can't just be anybody out there getting lit up and, and being a head case, feeling the pressure, and keep telling your skipper that you want a personal catcher. I mean, you just can't do it. If you have a catcher that's in the organization, like a Vasquez who's going to come up and is going to be that guy for the entire staff, then I don't care what Joe Kelly wants. You're going to force him to throw to this kid because this kid ultimately is going to be is better for you as a pitcher than someone even like Ryan Hannigan is, even though you might feel more comfortable with Hannigan behind the plate at the moment. So it's an interesting situation with this Red Sox pitching staff, uh, what they find themselves in. And, and, you know, it got a little more complicated yesterday because of what happened to Price and Kimbrell. It's a bad look. It's the complete opposite of how you draw it up if you're Dave Dombrowski and the Red Sox. I get it. But what you saw yesterday, I'm telling you, do not panic. That is just the complete opposite of what you're going to see for most of the season with these two guys. So um, I will react to this Red Sox game and Buck Colts start tonight. I'll react on tomorrow's podcast. As you know, I'm here five days a week. Uh, and tomorrow night's a big night. And tonight we got this Red Sox game. But tomorrow night's a huge night. In, in the NBA and in the NHL. Because in the NHL, the Stanley Cup playoffs begin tomorrow night on Wednesday night. And I'll get to some NHL thoughts to, to follow up on some things that I said yesterday. Especially with the Bruins and their coach, Claude Julien. I mean, by the time you listen to this, he might already be fired. By the t- Heck, by the time you listen to this, he might already be sitting at a press conference being named the new coach of the Ottawa Senators. The Senators this morning... They have fired their head coach. They have wiped out their entire coaching staff. I can only imagine that they're sitting there waiting for the Don Sweeney, Cam Neely press conference in which they're sitting there going, we'd like to thank Claude Julien for everything he's done here, but we need to move on. And they're going to make the call, and Julien's going to be the next coach of the Ottawa Senators. I mean, isn't it? It just seems to be a lock. That's lock of the week that Claude Julien, at some point in the next couple days, is sitting at a press conference in Ottawa being introduced as the head coach of the Senators. It's it's obvious to me. It's a lock of the week. So I guess we're just waiting to hear the announcement from the Bruins that he's gone and they're going to pot ways with him. I told you, it's a stupid move because Claude Julien isn't even going to... I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if he's already in contact with Ottawa. You know what? If I'm Claude Julien... Like, if we're having this conversation right now, can you imagine the thoughts going on in Claude's mind? Claude's not stupid. He knows how they feel about him. He knows that when the Bruins handed him that nice little watch a couple weeks ago in that pregame ceremony on the ice, uh, acknowledging him for having the most wins in franchise history as a coach, he got that watch. He gets that pregame ceremony. He's not stupid. He gets what they give him a trip to Disney World. Claude Julien. I've been to many Claude press conferences. I've talked to the guy um, several times. Claude, Claude can be a witty bastard. Claude gets it, okay? Claude knows when he's not wanted. You can sense it. You could sense it last offseason. You could sense it in that ceremony. Claude knows. 
So I can only imagine the conversations that Claude's having with the Senators at the moment, for crying out loud, even though he's still the coach of the Boston Bruins, I think. I mean, by the time you listen to this, that might no longer be the case. And as I said, by the time you listen to this, Claude might already have been announced the new coach of the Ottawa Senators. Believe me, he's not going to last long out there on the open market as a free agent coach. It's just not going to happen. And there's a reason for that, okay? There's a reason for that. And you would think the Bruins would understand that reasoning, but here they are, going to make the move and get rid of them, and then what? We're going to be sitting there going back and forth talking about potential college coaches coming up to the NHL. The Mike Milbury conversation is going to come up. Holy shit. If that's not Bobby V all over again, like Bobby Valentine for the Red Sox, Milbury is going to be Bobby V all over again. I mean, if I'm a young kid, put it this way. I think if you're Don Sweeney, Cam Neely, I know that you might be upset with the way Claude handles some of the young kids, and at times I have been too, but... I'm sorry, if you're trying to sign someone like Jimmy Vesey, if you're trying to, you know, convince younger talent, not even just younger talent, honestly, like if if you're going to try to go out and get a Keith Yandel who's going to be available, who wants to play in Boston, right? You're going to bring in Milbury? Honestly, you're going to bring in Mike Milbury? Come on. Like, that's just Bobby V all over again. That's going to be a one and done. I just, I don't know why you'd do that. But at the same time, I don't know why they get rid of Claude. I don't. People, some people tell me, the people that say they should say that he's the problem, I'm telling you, he's not the problem. I understand it's the business. It's the easiest move for a team to make when they do need a change. And the Bruins, I guess seemingly, they think they need a change because they haven't been to the playoffs now for two straight years. Uh, so that's the way they can justify this right now. But I think the Ottawa Senators can justify bringing in someone like like the Senators can justify their move more because they're getting rid of their current coaching staff and and they're opening the door for Claude Julien, and that's going to be a great move for Ottawa. And and by the time you listen to this, that might already be announced. I don't know, but to me, it's the lock of the week. So I guess I went to my NHL thoughts. A little bit ahead of time. I have another Bruins thought that I'll get to uh, in just a minute. Uh, But the Stanley Cup playoffs, they begin tomorrow night on tomorrow's podcast on Wednesday. I will give you my Stanley Cup playoff predictions for the teams that are in the tournament. And, you know, for the teams that aren't, as I mentioned, the Bruins. And I just told you about Louis Erickson. Louis Erickson's story, a Bruins story. It's about Louis. And I get this from DJ Bean, WEI.com. He had a conversation with Louis Erickson at getaway day. Was it getaway day? Is that what we're calling it? The final day the Bruins players meet with the media was yesterday. And it was weird because the coach didn't talk. He was there. He didn't talk. He was there. They didn't have exit interviews, which was weird. They're going to make the players come in another day. Usually they get that all out of the way the day that there's media availability. They didn't. Interesting. Again, I think another hint that they're going to make a move at the coaching spot, but when the players were available yesterday, I'm reading quotes from uh, DJ Bean's story on WEI.com. He talked to Louis Erickson about his impending free agency, which was it, July 1st, I think? He can be a free agent, unrestricted, can go wherever he wants. I, I think he has all the leverage in the world. I don't think he's coming back to the Bruins unless they overpay. And as much as I like Louis, and I've defended him many times, and I'd love to see him on this hockey team moving forward, 
I mean, he's earned the right to go out and, and, and make some big bucks, and I think that's exactly what's going to happen. And I think if you're the Bruins, knowing that you already have some big contracts, you know, you got to be careful. Uh, you can't overpay, but that's what it would take to get him. So I don't think Louie's going to be back. And, uh, you know, DJ, it sounds like, was having a conversation with Louie about what happened at the trade deadline and more specifically what the Bruins was saying at the trade deadline as to why they did not trade Louie Erickson. And one of those things was that they were not offered fair value for Louie. And fair value for Louie would have been at least a first-round pick. Can make the argument that should have been a first-round pick and a prospect. But let's just talk about a first-round pick. The Bruins said they weren't even... Not not only were they not offered a first-round pick for Louie, the Bruins try to justify holding on to Erickson by saying they weren't even offered two second-rounders. They were on the record saying that. Now, believe what you want, but it sounds like DJ had a conversation with Louie, and, and what I'm getting from this story is that Louie didn't necessarily believe that was the case. And if I'm Louie Erickson and I'm hearing that, if, you, if deep down inside you think the Bruins are lying about that, um, I think kind of a slap in the face. Because if you're Louie, you know, and he even says, I'll read you the quote. Here's what he said. He said, uh, it's hard to tell. I don't know. There was a lot of things going on around that time. I think the type of player that I am, I think a lot of teams want that type of player. We'll see what's going to happen. End quote. From Louis Erickson to DJB, WEEI.com. And when he says it's hard to tell, he's talking about whether or not the Bruins actually were offered, you know, fair value or if they were telling the truth. And, and I think the Bruins are full of shit. I mean, I've told you that since, since the deadline, the first time they said it. I'd say, oh, Cam Neely said that? No kidding, he said that. I mean, what else would he say? He's full of shit. You think the Bruins weren't offered something pretty good for Louis Erickson? Come on. Give me a break. Uh, the market was set. Right? The Andrew Ladd trade. Yeah, I mean, Eric Stahl into the Rangers for two second rounders. And Stahl's having a, his worst season of his career. Louis having a much better season than him. It just didn't make, doesn't make any sense. I, I do think the Bruins were off it. I just don't think the Bruins wanted to make the move because I think they were trying to just get into the playoffs. And if they knew if they traded Louie for this draft pick or, or a draft pick, that was not going to help them get to the playoffs this year. Now, here they are on the outside looking in. So, in hindsight, I'm sure maybe they're kicking themselves. But um, that was their motive, to get into the postseason. And they failed. So, now Louie has all the leverage. He's not going to be back. But I think it's interesting to sort of get into his mind as to what happened at the deadline. And he believes a, a lot of teams want – that the type of player that he is. And you know what? I agree with him. And that's why I think the Bruins are full of shit for what they said was was offered to them at the trade deadline. So also, uh, I, I might have mentioned this yesterday. I'm not sure. David Krejci is going to have hip surgery. That's what we got with the players talking um, yesterday in the final day. And we'll keep our eye on the Claude Julien situation. Again, by the time you listen to this today, Claude might already be gone. He might already be in Ottawa, but uh, not only is tomorrow a big night, Wednesday night a big night because the Stanley Cup playoffs begin, uh, tomorrow is a big night because the NBA, there are playoff implications, there's a playoff battle in the West for the eighth seed, there's playoff battles in the East to see who gets the the four, the five, or the six, Um, 
you know, the seeding and the first-round matchups. It's a big night. You also get the Warriors going for 73 wins. And you got Kobe Bryant's final game. Kobe's final game. Think about that. Think about that. Wednesday night, tomorrow night. So, and the, I, I heard this question yesterday. And the question was, if you could choose to go to one game, you could only go to one game. It's either Kobe Bryant's final NBA game, which is Wednesday night, 1030, as the Lakers host the Utah Jazz in L.A., Kobe's final game of his career. Or you can go to the Golden State Warriors game at Golden State against Memphis at 1030, and Golden State has a chance. They've already tied Chicago, the Chicago Bulls' regular season win record. Golden State has a chance to get the 73rd win of the season, which would be the most wins out of any team in any NBA season. The best record. Which game would you go to? You can only go to one. They're both at 1030. One's in Golden State. One's in LA. Which one would you go to? If, if you could only choose one. To me, it's a no-brainer. I don't even have to think twice about this. To me, I'm going to LA. I'm going to see Kobe's final game. And this is a Celtics fan telling you that. If if you told me I could I could go to one of these games, but I could only go to one, I'm not, I I don't even think twice. I'm going to I'm going to Kobe's final game. Now, what's interesting is ESPN is going to have the rights to these games on Wednesday night because it's a Wednesday night. On the regular ESPN, they're playing the Golden State game and they're playing the Lakers Utah Kobe's final game on ESPN two on ESPN two. I don't know. I don't know how I feel about that. I mean, look, the Golden State 73-win thing is a big record. It's it's obviously important to Golden State. I, I think it's a good thing for the game because who would have ever thought that this would happen? Who would ever thought that somebody would even tie the Bulls record of 72-10? and 10? And even if Golden State loses this game against Memphis, I mean, they could still go out and win a championship and, and say, well, they tied the Bulls' regular season record and won a title. Um, I think it would still be a great season. I'm not, I, I don't think I would really sit here and crush them, you know, unless they lost this game Wednesday in like devastating fashion where they're up 20 and Memphis comes back and, you know, there's just a huge collapse, like a Jordan Spieth-like collapse on the part of the Warriors to not get that 73rd win. Maybe I'd crush them then. But, I mean, I just think that the bigger game here is Kobe's final game. They'll be out there in the fourth quarter. They're going to, you know, I don't know, with a minute left, maybe you're going to hear the, eh. Kobe comes off the court, standing ovation. The place is going to be nuts. It's Kobe Bryant. It's one of the best players to ever play the game. He's a legend. That's the game I want to see. That's the game I'd want to be in the building for. Golden State, let's say they beat Memphis. They get win number 73. Draymond Green, Steph Curry, they dance around. They have a good time. They keep the ball. They do a team picture, and they go to the playoffs a couple days later. And they're playing the Houston Rockets or the Utah Jazz in the playoffs. I mean, yeah, and they'll sweep either of those teams. And we'll just be sitting there going, all right, when do they play? Tell me when they play San Antonio in the Western Conference Finals. Get me to that game. Get me to game one of the West Finals, San Antonio, Golden State. Oh, they won 73. Okay, great accomplishment. I'm, it's great for the game. I think it's been exciting to watch. But, you know, that's one season. Kobe Bryant is an absolute legend, and I, I, to me, that deserves more attention. I, I do. I feel like that deserves more attention uh, because 
at the end of the day, Kobe Bryant's career to me is greater than one season from a specific team. It is. Season record. All right, fine. Now you got to go out and win a championship. So you haven't accomplished that yet. You won it last year, but now you're going to win it again, right? Because people are going to say that. Well, you can get the record, but you got to get the title too. So it remains to be seen if they do that. Remains to be seen with the way we've seen San Antonio play this year if Golden State even comes out of the West. I mean, they're going to have, obviously, a great chance to do so, but don't sleep on the Spurs. I'm telling you right now, a 65-win season for San Antonio isn't all that bad. Isn't all that bad. A 39-1 and record at home isn't all that bad, even though Golden State was a team to give them uh, their first home loss the other night. It's still, a pre- still pretty good. So, um, to me, if you ask me what game I'd rather go to, I'd rather go to L.A. and see Kobe's final game. Just to see, uh, you know what, I'll show up for the fourth quarter. And when he comes out of that game, that's going to be as special a moment as you'll see in sports. It is. I mean, this is bigger than basketball. See, that's the thing. Like, the Lakers game, Kobe's final game, like, it's bigger than basketball. It's bigger than the NBA. This is going to be a legendary moment in the history of sports. I don't know that I feel the same way about Golden State setting the regular season win record. I just... I just don't, I don't feel the same way about that. Um, and this is coming from a Celtics fan who has basically despised Kobe Bryant and has hated seeing him on the court against my team at any point in time. And, and someone who is somewhat, you know, the Celtics fan in me, somewhat pleased that Kobe isn't lasting another five years so that when the Celtics do get back to the promised land, they don't have to run in to Kobe Bryant again. But he's had a tremendous career. He's had a legendary career. He's one of the best players to ever play in the NBA, in the history of the game. And if you want to argue that he's one of the greatest professional athletes of all time, I absolutely think you can do that. I think what you're going to see in L.A. Wednesday night, tomorrow night, is bigger than basketball. This is about just a legendary career, one of the greatest careers in the history of professional sports. That's coming to an end, officially. And to me, that's the ticket. They're going to put it on ESPN, too. All right. I mean, if you have ESPN, most likely you have ESPN, too. It's not that big of a deal. But, you know, when they put these two games on TV, they say, all right, ESPN's our top dog, and ESPN, there's a reason why we put a two next to it. It's the second choice. They're going to give Golden State the first choice. I just, if I had a choice and I had tickets, I'd be going to L.A. before I went to that Golden State-Memphis game. I would. So. Big night, huge night, Wednesday night, and not just with those two things, but also the playoff race in the East. I mean, last night, the Celtics with an awful loss to the Charlotte Hornets at home. It's just, that was terrible. I thought they were going to battle back with like four minutes left, but it just, it wasn't their night. Charlotte was shooting it last night. Jeremy Lin, 25 points a game high. Now look, with that loss, you look at the standings in the East, Atlanta's the three. Uh, Miami's the four right now. The Celtics are the five seed, and Charlotte's the six seed. The Celtics, they close out the regular season hosting Miami Wednesday night. And the Charlotte Hornets on Wednesday, they are hosting the Orlando Magic. So the Celtics have a much tougher game than Charlotte does. Now, as the Celtics lose this game last night, and I say this, 
from the outside looking in. Like, I do not expect the Celtics to feel this way. I don't expect Brad Stevens. In fact, not only do I not expect it, I know they don't. I know they're not looking at it this way, the way I'm looking at it, okay? But I'm looking at it this way because I can and I will. And I've gone over the playoff scenario now in the East many times for you in the last couple months. And I told you the one team that if you can be optimistic with me for a second, the one team that you'd like to avoid in the second round is undoubtedly the Cleveland Cavaliers if you want to give yourself the best shot to get to the conference final. You do not want to play Cleveland in the second round because Cleveland is going to win that series. I don't care who you are. I don't care who you are. Cleveland is going to the conference final. And to be honest, I don't care who you are in the East. Cleveland is going to the NBA finals. They are. They're going to the finals. But if you want to get to the conference final, you want to avoid Cleveland in the second round at all costs. With that said, you got to look at the brackets. Set brackets in the NBA, and that means the winner of the one versus the eight plays the winner of the four versus the five. So if the playoffs began today, the Celtics are the five seed, Miami's the four seed. If the Celtics could beat Miami, and I think they could beat Miami, I think the Celtics could beat Atlanta, Miami, or Charlotte in the first round. I really believe that. Let's say the Celtics beat Miami, and the Celtics are the five seed. They would play Cleveland in the second round. And if you want to avoid Cleveland in the second round, and this is just me from the outside looking in, I don't expect the Celtics to think this way, and in fact, I know they don't think this way. But I will, I can, I will. As I'm watching the Celtics losing to Charlotte last night, deep down inside, I wasn't all that upset because I know the Celtics can be better than they were in that game last night. One, they can. I know also the Celtics can beat Charlotte in a seven-game series. Now, I won't lie. Out of all the teams in the East, I've seen Charlotte the least amount. Literally, even out of teams that, like, are down and out of it. Right? I've seen the Knicks more than I've seen the Hornets. I've watched Milwaukee more than the Hornets. I've watched the Wizards and the Bulls more than the Hornets. I have. I've watched all these teams more than the Hornets. So, what you're seeing with the Hornets right now, what I saw last night... I'm watching it going, eh, you know what? I haven't really seen them all that much this season. So there's, there's an aspect of, of Charlotte Hornet basketball that, that I'm not too familiar with. But as you watch them play, you know, you get familiar with some of the plays they do have. Like, you know what Al Jefferson can do to you. And I'll just say this. If you do play Charlotte in the first round, in no way, shape, or form can you ever have any possession in which Kelly Olenek has to cover Al Jefferson down on the post because that is not going to end well, as you saw a couple times last night. It's just not going to end well. So if it's not going to end well, don't let it start to begin with. All right, don't let it start to begin with. And, you know, outside of that, I mean, Kemba Walker likes taking crazy shots. Jeremy Lin, he can have some nice games and be an exciting player. They got some other pieces there. But all in all, I just don't think Charlotte can beat the Celtics in a seven-game series. Uh, so, but, but I'm, so I know what the Celtics could be if they did play Charlotte. That said, I'm watching them lose to the Hornets last night. And deep down inside, I wasn't all that upset because I'm thinking to myself, well, I'd rather see the Celtics. I know they wouldn't, but I'd rather see them as the sixth seed with a chance to beat Atlanta in the first round, which I think they can do, and then not play Cleveland in the second round. Because if you're the three or the six, you play the winner of the two versus the seven. And right now, the two is Toronto, and they'll remain the two. 
and they'll be playing either Indiana or Detroit. I expect Toronto to win that series. Toronto's got a couple nice pieces. You know, they got a couple all-stars there, DeRozan, Lowry. But I look at Toronto, and, and I'm telling you right now, even though they've been pretty good against the Celtics this year, I still think that's a series the Celtics could win. Now you got to win the first one. I understand that. And if you're looking like I am to maybe be the six more than the four or the five, well, then you got to play Atlanta. And you saw what Atlanta did to Boston over the weekend. Uh, the Celtics did not fare very well in that game in Atlanta. At least late, Atlanta pulled away. I, I, I still look at Atlanta. I think there's part of the game that's just too soft for playoff basketball. We've seen it. I mean, year after year after year, why would it be different this year? I don't really see why it would. Uh, I, you know, you watch some of the defense that Jay Crowder, I thought, was playing on, on someone like Millsap. Amir Johnson, you know, if he can reject some shots and play some defense down low, I give the Celtics a shot in that series to beat Atlanta. So deep down inside last night, I wasn't I wasn't that upset that they were losing this game to Charlotte. I know what the Celtics could be in a series against the Hornets, and uh, I also know that I'd like, if you can win that first rounder and first round series, I'd like to avoid Cleveland in the first round. So if you do drop to the sixth seed, I don't think that's the worst thing in the world, if you're thinking big picture. And if you are as optimistic about the Celtics' chances to beat some of these other teams in the East as I am, because let's face it, outside of Cleveland, all right, you got Toronto and Atlanta, but I mean, what, you're not going to give the Celtics a shot against against anyone in this conference? I'm not going to give them a shot against Cleveland, but put Cleveland aside for a second. You're not going to give the Celtics a shot against any of these other teams? Eh, I know I am. I'm going to give them a shot against some of these other teams. And, you know, we'll, we'll find out what the playoff bracket's going to look like after Wednesday night uh, in the East, also on Wednesday night in the West. Got an interesting matchup here. The Mavericks last night, they clinched a playoff spot with their win over Utah. So the Dallas Mavericks, they're that seventh seed in the West. There's only one spot that's not clinched in the West. It's the Houston Rockets. They are the eighth seed, and they're battling with Utah. Both of these teams are one game under 500 with a 40-41 and 41 record, and they each have one game left. Now, Houston owns the tiebreaker. So if Houston wins their game on Wednesday night, which is at home against Sacramento, Houston should win that game, and Utah wins their game over the Lakers in L.A., their final game, Houston will still go to the playoffs and get that 8 seed because Houston holds the tiebreaker. So Utah needs to beat the Lakers and they need Houston to lose to Sacramento somehow. Uh, I don't think that'll happen. I think Houston will win, and if they win, they are in. So uh, I think Houston will get that eight seed, and they will be playing Golden State in the first round. And I guess if you're Houston, you hope James Harden can get hot and maybe steal a couple games with his offense. I'm just not so sure that's going to happen. So that's where we stand in the NBA and their playoff races And as I told you, the Stanley Cup playoffs in the NHL begin tomorrow night as well. Wrap up the show with a couple NFL thoughts and NFL storylines. Yeah, I mentioned this whole Johnny Manziel thing. And and, and there's a new twist to the Johnny Manziel story. He he ran into TMZ cameras the other night. And I think he was shit-faced because he was telling the TMZ cameras, he's like, there's nothing wrong with partying, bro. I mean... You can't be saying that if you're in Johnny Manziel's position. You just can't. I I know. I guess I uh, he's what he's saying is 
you know, there's nothing wrong with going out and having a drink. But, but he, the words that came out of his mouth were, there's nothing wrong with partying, bro. I mean, get it together, Johnny Manziel. You can't be saying that to cameras if you're looking for another shot in the NFL. He also said that he's living with Vaughn Miller. And Vaughn Miller's been very outspoken. He says he wants Johnny Manziel uh, to go to Denver, be in the Broncos organization. Now, Vaughn Miller and Johnny Manziel, they both went to Texas A&M, but they didn't actually, they weren't there at the same time. Vaughn Miller was, had left, and then Manziel came the next year. But because they both went to Texas A&M, I guess there's that connection there. I think Vaughn Miller's playing the role or trying to play the role of father figure to Manziel, who clearly needs some help. We, we heard the quote from Manziel's father not too long ago in which he said, look, I'm concerned that Johnny might not make it to his next birthday. Manziel's got the whole domestic thing going on with his girlfriend. That's no good, As, you know, especially where the NFL is right now and how they need to be very careful handling those situations. You know, Greg Hardy, Ray Rice, you know, you got Manziel linked to something like that. That is not good. And on top of it, you know, the alcohol situation with Johnny Manziel, Johnny Manziel was shit-faced the other night. He clearly told TMZ that he was living with Vaughn Miller. Turns out that's not true. And that's why he, I say he was shit-faced. Because as it turns out, well, Johnny Manziel's living with someone. And he is living with an NFL player. It's just not Vaughn Miller. He got the wrong guy. He's living with Josh Gordon. And that's where this new twist comes in. Because the report last night was that Cleveland Browns wide receiver Josh Gordon has failed another drug test. Like, how big of an idiot do you have to be? Josh Gordon is trying to get reinstated, and now the news today is that Gordon's reinstatement has been delayed. Well, no shit. When you fail a drug test, another one, of course your reinstatement's going to be delayed. Now, Josh Gordon has been suspended since February of 2015, and you would think that if you're Josh Gordon, you know, you if you're trying for reinstatement, that you wouldn't be failing another drug test. One. Two, you would think that you probably wouldn't be living with Johnny Manziel when Johnny Manziel's got all these issues. So that's an even new... And and on top of it, then you go vice versa. If you're Johnny Manziel and you're trying to get back into the league, you know, and and give someone a... give you a shot. One, you wouldn't be in TMZ cameras saying, nothing wrong with partying, bro. Two, you know, you shouldn't be living with Josh Gordon while he's out failing more drug tests. I mean, it's just not a good fit and a good living situation for either of those two players. So something's got to happen there. Something's got to happen. Those two cannot be living together. And um, that's the latest twist on their respective situations. But apparently, you know, you don't need me to tell you that given their situations, these two guys, Manziel and Gordon, should not be living together, right? I mean, that should just be the obvious thing. Um, It just should not happen. But yet it is, and we'll keep an eye on their situations as I'm sure the drama will continue to unfold. Uh, last but not least, yesterday before I went back into work at WEI last night, you know, I get home from this studio, I had to do a couple things, and then uh, watch the Red Sox game, obviously for my radio show last night. Before I went into the studio, I'm watching SportsCenter at 6 o'clock, and the first thing they have, well, actually, you know what? What I'm about to tell you was the second thing they had. The first thing they had was the story about this guy 
was it the Tigers game in Detroit? He caught five foul balls. Have you ever seen anything like that? And he caught five. It's funny because they have video of it, and he gives every ball away to a kid. Now, he brought a glove. And, you know, if you're an adult, that's a big-time no-no. Like, you just can't bring a glove to a game. Now, guess what? I've had a couple foul balls close to me. I've never got one in my actual hands. But I can tell you this. Since I've, you know, I think once you turn 10, once you get double digits, you can't bring a glove to the ballpark anymore. So I haven't. Uh, But, you know, once you get to the point where, you know, you get to an adult stage and you don't bring a glove to a game, I have not had a ball, foul ball, like, touch my hand. Like, we had one close. The closest I've come was a buddy of mine, Osal. He caught a, just a line drive in the 2004 ALCS. It was game four. We moved up. We looked down. We were watching Dave Roberts steal second. It was a foul ball, ripped up. My buddy Osal caught it. What a grab. Honestly, best grab I've seen this was an absolute rocket back. Again, we were on the first baseline. We were up top overlooking Dave Roberts still second. There was a line drive back to him. He snagged it with one hand. It was as hot a foul ball back at someone as I've ever seen. And I was, to this day, I'm impressed that, that he snagged that ball. And we're all going nuts. And he's right next to me. We're pointing up at the, at the Fox broadcast, right, at Joe Buck and McCava. We're doing the Manny point, right, thinking that they'll get the camera on us. I don't think we ever had it on us. In fact, actually, I know we didn't. But that's as close as I've come. You get this guy who's in Detroit. He gets five foul balls. Now, he brought a glove. But where I'll give him the pass, and I won't sit here and crush this dude, is that he gave every ball to a kid, to a little kid. And that's fine. You know what? Yeah, I'm fine with that. Imagine if he kept him in the glove. Like, that would be... Then we'd be ripping this dude. Uh... He gave him the kids, and that's fine. The fact that five were hit to him and he got them is a little outrageous. Like, I can't even believe it. I really can't believe it. But it happened. He got five. The craziest part about it, though, is not only did he get five, he actually got six because he caught one in batting practice, too. He got one in batting practice. Imagine showing up to the ballpark, someone telling you, you're going to get six balls tonight. Yeah. Even with a glove, you'd say, you're nuts. That's not going to happen. And then there it is. They led SportsCenter off 6 o'clock last night with that. Which, you know what? Usually I'd knock it. He gave the balls to the kids. It was a unique story. Hey, it's Tim Kirkagen on. All right. I was fine with it. But then you get Akib Tlaib on the set. And uh, I, I, we played the audio last night on WEI. If you didn't hear it, I'm going to play it for you again right now. I tweeted it out. you got to watch the video, too. You're going to hear the audio now. Go to my Twitter account. Follow me, at Danny Picard. I posted the video yesterday, I think around 6.30, 7 o'clock. Akib Tlaib having a one-on-one in studio in Bristol on Sports on a set. And, I mean, the hat that he has on, the outfit that he has on, if you know anything about Akib Tlaib, you know that he is a hilarious dude. Like, I covered the Patriots when Tlaib uh, was on the Patriots. I was a reporter at the time for Comcast Sportsnet. And I was in the locker room after practices, before practices, uh, after games. And, you know, whenever I went over to Akib Tlaib's locker, I don't even think that I was looking for any type of hard news or headline story or breaking news. You're just going over there because when he talks, it is hilarious. He is a hysterical dude. 
So when he's on SportsCenter yesterday, I say, oh, I hear Akeem Tlaib's voice. I got to listen to this. And I'm so glad I did because I recorded the video and the audio of him talking about how he is terrified of birds. Now, you got to watch the video to see what he's wearing while he's talking about this. But here's Akeem Tlaib. Here's the audio. I'll play it for you. Talking about birds and how he hates them. Okay. And? Well, I'm like super terrified of birds. Really? Like specific birds or like all, all birds? I like those. When I see them, I don't know why. It's just a couple encounters maybe. <laughs> but I really don't mess with the birds. Um, <clears throat> two things. Oh, I have watched that a hundred times. And the first 20 times I watched it, I was legit in tears. That's how funny I think Akeem Tlaib is. It's hysterical. So uh, make sure, though, you go to my Twitter account, at Danny Picard, and watch the video of it to go along with the audio. So there's a funny audio clip to send you on your way this afternoon. And tonight, I will react to the Clay Buckholtz start at Fenway tonight against the Baltimore Orioles. I'm telling you, the Red Sox offense is going to jump all over this kid, Mike Wright, early and often. At least if they don't, they'll be blowing a huge opportunity against this kid who is not very good and got lit up the last time he played the Red Sox last September. So I'll react to that tomorrow and obviously react to all the top stories in the world of sports. Hopefully, I'm doing this show tomorrow with a big poppy 500 chain over my neck. I hope so. But even if I don't get it, I will be rocking a David Ortiz Big Poppy farewell to a t-shirt, which you can get one of a kind right here at Beantown Athletics. Come to the shop, 132 Granite Ave in Dorchester, or give them a call, 617-282-4181. That's 617-282-4181. And the website, beantownathletics.com. Let them know you want one of these David Ortiz farewell tour t-shirts it's got a picture of big poppy on the front has his number 34 on the back and above his number it says thank you get one today and i will talk to you tomorrow